will direct your attention in God's Word to Galatians 5, Galatians chapter 5. And I'm just going to read these two verses that we've been looking at now for a number of weeks. Galatians 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. But let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us this morning as we consider His holy word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we understand that this is your word. Uh, This is not simply the word of Paul. It's not simply the word of the church. But Lord, this is your holy word. You inspired it. You gave it to Paul. You have given it now to us that we might study it, that we might understand it, and ultimately we might live it out in our own lives. Help us today by your Spirit that you would please use this word in our hearts and lives and that you you would sanctify us through your word. We do pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we want to resume this morning our study of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, as you know, for a number of weeks now, we have been considering the fruit of the Spirit as uh, they are listed for us here in the passage we just read in Galatians 5, where Paul gives us uh, these nine kinds or varieties or aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that he produces in the uh, hearts and lives of God's people. You have love, uh, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, (coughs) kindness, and goodness. Those are the first five that we have so far looked at. And remember that as we've gone along, we've tried to make the point over and over again that we need to see that these uh, various characteristics and dispositions, these kinds of fruit, as we take them together, you might say as a cluster, they are a beautiful tapestry or a composite picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect humanity And it's a picture of the Christ-likeness that God is eager to produce in all of us, His children. And so taken together as one tree with nine varieties of fruit, or as one whole with nine dimensions, but it sets before us this Christ-like character that the Holy Spirit uh, works in all of those in whom He inhabits. Now today we want to consider the fruit or the Christ-like characteristic, uh, the sixth one, and it's uh, referred to here as faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Now by way of introduction to this fruit of the Spirit, and before we can come to grips with what this fruit is actually all about, we need to appreciate two things. And this morning we're going to camp on these two things, so... And, and I've, I've labored, I've, I've really fear that this could be very confusing. I'm going to try my best to be logical and, and plot along. But you're going to have to listen hard this morning. There's a lot here, and I'm, I'm fearing that we'll get lost in the, in the weeds. And I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. But anyway, we need to appreciate two things right up front. Number one is the meaning of the word that's used here in Galatians 5.22. And secondly, the model of faithfulness, who is the Lord Himself. And so that's what we're going to concentrate on this morning. Next week, God willing, we'll be looking at our response, our faithfulness to God. Today, we're not. Number one, the meaning of our word here. And that's essential because the word is used many, many times in the New Testament. And it can have both what I'm calling a passive sense and an active sense to it. And uh, that probably didn't mean a thing to you, but let me explain what I'm talking about. The word translated faithfulness here is the same word that's translated dozens of times as faith or believe. 
that's the passive sense. Faith is to trust, it's to depend upon, it's to believe upon or in someone. It's a resting upon, it's a depending upon, it's relying upon the Lord who Himself is faithful and trustworthy. Relying upon Him, relying upon His grace, relying upon His promises, relying upon His power, and so forth. So we use it in that sense. It's faith. Faith that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as He's offered to us in the Gospel. That's faith. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. We're kept by the power of God through faith. We're justified by faith. The just shall live by His faith, and so forth. Well, that's the same word that's translated here in our text, faithfulness. And that's the predominant way, that is faith, that's the predominant way that it is uh, translated in the New Testament when referring to the people of God. But there is a second way of understanding our word, and that's in the active sense of being faithful, being trustworthy, uh, being one that we can be counted on, one who can be relied upon, someone who keeps his word, keeps his promises, keeps all of his commitments, that person, we would call him a faithful person. A person who lives out his or her faith by being faithful to God. And there are a number of occasions where this same word can be translated, rightly so, faithful, as opposed simply to faith. And really, when you think about it, faithfulness is simply faith in action. Uh, is faith in exercise. If we truly believe God, if we truly trust in Him, then we're going to seek to be faithful to Him, even as He is to us. And so we have these two basic concepts, or two ways of looking at this word. Passively, as faith, or trusting, relying upon the Lord, faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in the Gospel, or in an active sense, being faithful, as in Faithful unto death, or uh, God, God um, commending the wise and faithful servant, for example. One who is uh, true to his word, one who is trustworthy, one who is dependable. That's, tr that's being faithful. So which is it? What did Paul have in mind here in this passage? Well, in your old King James Version Bibles, it has faith. It has faith. But every other reliable translation that I checked with went with faithfulness. And most, not all, but most of what we would say are orthodox commentators believe that Paul is using this word here as speaking of the virtue of faithfulness, that is, faith in an active sense, and not simply just faith in the sense of trust and reliance upon God. Not that it excludes the other. And the primary reason that they want to do that, interpret it this way, interpret it faithfulness, is the order in which this word appears here in the list of these virtues or these fruit. And the argument goes like this. Again, so you're going to have to, you're going to, have to hang with me. The argument is this. If this were saving faith here in Galatians 5.22... Surely it would have been at the top of the list. Or, or at least it would be number two after love. It wouldn't be number six after long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. It just simply doesn't make sense, at least it doesn't to me, that Paul would place faith or trusting in the Lord, justifying, saving faith, so far down this list. When uh, it's obvious love is number one for a reason. Love is at the top of the list for a reason. It is the most important. You understand that. He's already made that plain in other places. Without love, nothing matters. And so why would he wait to number six to give us faith if faith is justifying faith, faith that brings us to Christ and, and brings justice? You see my point. I hope we see the point. And so I tend to agree with that logic. And since this word can be translated, legitimately translated faithfulness, that's the way we're going to deal with it primarily. But I must say again, again, here, I don't want to be complicated, but we cannot separate it, we cannot separate these two ideas, that of faith, of trust, and faithfulness, where our 
faith is being worked out in our lives. That's the way we're going to deal with it. In both of these ways. We cannot divorce faithfulness from the basic exercise of our faith. Put it another way. We cannot be faithful men or women unless we already possess and are exercising faith in God. And while Paul did probably have here faithfulness in mind, I'm convinced he did, but yet the book of Galatians, if you take it as a whole, certainly has much to say about faith itself in that passive sense. Especially the importance of faith in Christ, in the gospel, by which we're justified. So I don't think we can rule out the idea of faith either. In fact, this same word is found in verse 22. is translated in the letter to Galatians 19 other times. In virtually every other instance, it refers to faith in the gospel. The faith by which we're justified before God. The faith by which we live out the Christian life. Let me show you a couple of examples of that. Look back with me to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith, this is the same word, pistos, by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith, there it is again, in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Uh, so we understand now, and I hope you do, that Paul's great concern in penning his letter to the Galatian churches was to refute the heresy of the Judaizers who were infiltrating the churches with a gospel of faith plus works for justification. Uh, that for a person, a sinner, to really be saved, you had to keep the law of Moses, you had to be circumcised, you had to keep the ceremonial law, the feast days, the moral law, all of it. To them, faith in Christ was not sufficient for justification. It wasn't. Oh, Christ was okay, but you had to add to Christ all these other things. And so Paul goes after that error with everything he's got. He even says back in chapter 1 that if anyone preaches another gospel unto you than what I have already preached, let him be accursed, let him be damned. He says, I don't care if it's an angel that's come from heaven. There's only one gospel. And it's a gospel that says we're justified not by our own works, not by our doing, not by our law-keeping and religious activity, but by faith in a crucified and risen Savior. Our faith unites us to Christ, and being united to Him, we're justified. We're declared righteous before God based on what Jesus has done and not what we have done or ever will do. Amen. Well, it's faith and faith alone that appropriates Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness by which a sinner, sinners like you and me, are justified before God. Now that's how important faith is. Faith is the, is the hinge on which salvation turns. It's crucial that we understand it. Look at Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, here it is, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, that is the law opposed to faith, then Christ died in vain. So here Paul is expressing his own personal faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that as a, as a Christian man here, uh, day in and day out, he lived by faith in the Son of God that had loved him, who gave his life for him to save him upon the cross. And so every day Paul lived his Christian life the same way he began it, by looking to Christ and his saving love and His giving His life on the cross for him, the righteousness of Jesus that He has given to him. He trusted Christ to forgive him. 
He trusted Christ to be his righteousness before God, and he recognized that to trust in his own merits to make him right with God would be tantamount to saying Christ died in vain for nothing. Christ was to Paul his whole life. He's everything, day in, day out. Now that's the great theme of Galatians and the whole Christian life experience. The just shall live by faith, not by sight, not by works. We live with our eye fixed on a crucified, risen Savior who loved us, who died for us to secure our redemption and supply us with a perfect righteousness that will carry us all the way through the judgment of God. Even later in Galatians 5-6 where Paul speaks of gospel sanctification. Listen how he describes it. He says it's faith that is working through love. Faith that works through love. And so every aspect of our salvation, you see, is dependent upon faith. Faith that clings to God, clings to Christ, clings to His promises. A faith that compels us then to be faithful in all of the duties of the Christian life. See how these things merge together. Yeah. But now here's the point, or here's, here's one of the questions that arises from this. Where does this faith come from? Faith is absolutely essential if we're going to be saved. But where does faith come from? And that's one of the points that Paul's making here when he says it's a fruit of the Spirit. Justifying faith, faith that embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as He's offered to us in the Gospel, faith that lays hold of those promises of God, faith that trusts in the righteousness of Christ, faith indeed that works by love, is not native to the fallen human heart, dear people. Lost people do not have faith that they can, can, uh, they can turn on like a light switch to believe in God and believe in the gospel. Jesus said pointedly, those of you that have been in the class will remember this, Jesus said pointedly that no man can come to me that is, no man can believe in me unless the Father who sent me draw him and the Father teaches him effectually by his grace. John chapter 6. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him nor can he know them that is, he can't understand them or discern them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. And, and then he went on to say the God of this age, that is talking about the devil, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God, should shine unto them. Now, here's the problem. This is why unsaved people respond to the gospel like they do. Because the gospel is foolishness to them. It's foolishness to them. They're blind as bats spiritually. They need God who commanded life at the creation to shine out of darkness, to shine into their dark hearts, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When the gospel is preached, God has to turn on the light. You get that. And so faith itself, as well as faithfulness, as we'll see, but faith itself is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember Ephesians 2.8 makes it very plain that saving faith, along with every other dimension of our salvation, is the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast, but the faith by which we lay hold of Christ in the gospel is God's gift to sinners. Philippians 1.29, Paul told the Philippian saints, <clears throat> that it had been granted unto them, it had been given unto them on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now that's, there, there are lots of folks that are happy to say, well, God gave me faith to believe on Jesus. They're not so happy to say that He gave me the prospect of suffering. You see, the idea there is God gives both. He gives us faith to believe in Him, but He also gives His people suffering. He's the author of both. 
But Paul understood that to believe in Christ was a God-given grace. That God Himself was the source of His faith. That God gives faith. He's grant, he grants it to His people. And brethren, we need to see it this way. That even if the, the faith that I exercise towards God, the gospel, and, and the faith that I have in an unseen God, in His Word, His promises, as well as in the Savior, is not of my own making. I don't have faith natively residing in my heart as a lost person, as someone dead in trespasses and sins, that's just there just to be tickled and, and drawn out of you. No, no. God has to give us faith because we're dead in trespasses and sins when we come into this world. True. We need to understand that. Yeah. Faith is a gift of God. In fact, it's the fruit of the Spirit. See how that works couple of quick applications before we move along here. Uh, first of all, in our giving of thanks to the Lord, we should not fail to thank Him for our faith. We should give credit to whom credit is due for our faith. Because if God did not give us the faith by which to believe the gospel, to embrace His truth, to embrace His Son, we would still be Christ-rejecting un believers. We would still be lost. We would still be blind. We would still be wandering around in total darkness. How grateful you and I ought to be, brethren, that God has not only provided a Savior and He's given us the gospel, but He also gave us the grace to receive and believe that gospel. And if faith is the gift of God and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it should make us more prayerful and even more patient. Uh, patient with unbelievers. The fact that faith must be granted to a person before they can believe should make us more diligent to pray that the Lord would grant them faith. Grant faith to those that we witness to or those that we preach to, those that we love, those that we desire to, to see converted. That, that God would give us patience and that we would be crying out to Him to give them that faith. But it should give us hope, brethren, that the Lord can open the eyes and the Holy Spirit can grant those lost souls. He can give them the fruit of faith. And so we look to Him and we wait upon Him to do just that. The fruit of the Spirit is faith. But now, that's the, what, we, what we might call the passive side of things. Faith in terms of resting upon God. Resting upon His Word. Resting upon Christ. That's faith. But now let's move to the second aspect of our Word. The more active activity. Not that believing on Christ is passive at all. That's not the way I'm using the Word, you see. But the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. In the sense of one who is trustworthy. One who is truthful. One who is worthy to be trusted. One who always keeps His word. One who keeps His commitments. That is a faithful man or woman. And all of us should aspire to be such. True. Now this characteristic or virtue of faithfulness, first and foremost, and this is crucial, first and foremost belongs to God Himself. You see, He, brethren, is the great model and the source of all faithfulness. He is the faithful God. And then it's the work of God's Spirit to enable us, on the one hand, to trust the faithfulness of God, as well as to conform us to this aspect of God's character by making us, by His grace, faithful Christian men and women. And so the foundation of our faith and our faithfulness is the faithfulness of our God. And so before we consider what it is for us to be faithful, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning reflecting on the faithfulness of God. Okay? So we, we, we want to see that our God is faithful and we're, we're to imitate Him. Okay? So first of all, and we're going to look at a number of aspects of His faithfulness, 
But the first thing we want to notice is that God is faithful in His very person and being. God is a faithful God. Faithfulness, which we, we define as truthfulness or veracity, is an essential aspect of God's very nature. So I want you to look with me to a few passages. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And there are lots of passages, by the way, in the Bible that tell us that God is faithful. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, here Moses is encouraging the people of God to be faithful and to trust Him, and to be obedient to Him, to be obedient to His covenant. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments, and He repays those who hate Him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So Moses says to Israel here, God has been so kind and generous and gracious to Israel. He says that, that God is a faithful God, a God who keeps his covenant, a God who keeps his word. And he has pledged to show mercy to all of those who love him and keep his commandments. And he's promised to repay and destroy those who hate him, that he will not be slack in executing his judgment upon them. God's faithfulness is known, you see, in his keeping his word, both his promises as well as his threats. And Moses highlights God's faithfulness to his covenant as a reason why his people then should strive to be faithful to Him. God is a faithful God who keeps His covenant with His people. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. It's a glorious psalm. A messianic psalm for sure. And this psalm, perhaps more than any other psalm, points us to the faithfulness of the Lord as He's working out His covenant mercy with the Messiah, and ultimately with His people. There are seven references in Psalm 89 to the faithfulness of God. In fact, look how it begins. Look how it begins here. Uh, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, and with my mouth will I make known Your faithfulness to all generations, for I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. And so here he says God's character, in this case his faithfulness, is worthy to be sung about. Let's sing of the faithfulness of God. What a glorious thing this is. And he goes on, look at verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who, can, who in the heavens can com be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence <clears throat> by, by all those around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord. Now we'll stop at that point. But the psalmist's point here is that God's faithfulness is something that the saints should praise Him for. They should rejoice in His faithfulness. We should trust in His faithfulness. And he wanted to make known the fact that, that His God is a faithful God. And that faithfulness, he uses interesting language. He says faithfulness surrounds Him. That is, God is enveloped as it were. He is clothed in faithfulness. And so, brothers and sisters, this is not a secondary thing. It's not a secondary attribute of God. This is something that is foundational and fundamental to the character and to the being of the Lord God that we worship. It's something that we, as the people of God, need to understand better. We need to meditate upon it better. We need to praise God for it more than we do. 
But the psalmist goes on, and this psalm, of course, is a ultimately a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, who was to come, and in whom God's covenant would stand firm and be established. Very important. And again, God's faithfulness to the Messiah, to Christ, and to His children becomes the focus of this psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. But look at verse 24. Verse 24 we read, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with Him. Verse 28, talking about Christ. My mercy I will keep for Him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with Him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and His throne is the days of heaven. And if His sons forsake my law... And we realize this talk... Ezra here... Or, um, I'm sorry, Ethan, I said Ezra. It's, it, it, the Ezraite, it's Ethan that wrote this. But my point is this. He's talking about David, then he's talking about Solomon, David's son, and then he's talking about God's David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to be careful how we look at this. But he's talking about his seed. He's talking about Christ ultimately. I will make to endure forever his thrones as the days of heaven. And if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I've sworn in my hope by my holiness, I will not lie to David." His seed shall endure forever, and His throne is the sun before me, and it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. And my intention, of course, isn't to expound this whole psalm, but just to point out the obvious, that God's covenant mercy is with Christ and His people, and that God's faithfulness undergirds that covenant. And that He will not break it. He will not alter His covenant. Therefore, Christ is going to be exalted as King forever. And His throne shall be established forever. And His people, yes, talking about the succession of kings, I understand that. But talking about Him and talking about His people who break the law will be chastened but not forsaken. He will not allow His faithfulness to fail. God's covenant is secure. Secure in Christ and with Christ because God the Father is a faithful covenant-keeping God. And our ultimate salvation in Christ rests on God's faithful execution of His covenant with His Son. And that's the point, ultimately the point of Psalm 89. Look at Lamentations 3. Now Lamentations comes right after Jeremiah. It's written by Jeremiah. Don't look at Lamentations very often, but this one particular passage I think most of us understand, have heard. Lamentations 3. Jeremiah wrote this, uh, seeking to encourage the faithful remnant of true believers during the Babylonian captivity, uh, to give them hope in the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation. Look at 3.22. Lamentations 3.22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. We're not consumed because His compassion's not consumed, basically. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly uh, for the salvation of the Lord. But, the, but you get the point. His compassion, Jeremiah, the hope Jeremiah wants to communicate to the people of God is a hope based upon what? The faithfulness of God. That's the source of these mercies of God that are flowing to the remnant there 
in Babylon. God's mercies toward his people, he says, will never fail. They will never run dry because of God's great faithfulness. And that, you see, should give us hope, brethren. Even in the bleakest and darkest of times, those days were very bleak and dark. And yet, Jeremiah calls the people to hope in the Lord. That the Lord has not abandoned us. His mercies will never fail. We can trust in Him because He's a faithful covenant-keeping God. So whatever the church may be going through, whatever difficulty or trial we are called to endure, we can be certain that God's mercies will never fail. He will always be faithful to us. But then He's also faithful in His Word, in His promises. Psalm 119 and 138, David confessed, Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very pure. He goes on to say, Your word is very pure. 119, 160, the psalm says, The entirety of your word is truth. And so God's word from start to finish, brethren, is trustworthy. It is true because the God who authored it, the God who spoke it, the God who had it written down, is a faithful God, a true God. As Balaam said to Balak, the Lord is not a man that he should lie. He's called the God of truth. He never lies. He never see he never deceives. Titus 1 Titus says, 1 2 says that he cannot lie. Everything God says is true. You can go to the bank with it. You can stake your eternal soul on the word of the living God. Everything God says is true. Every prophecy that He has spoken will come to pass. Every promise that He has promised will be fulfilled absolutely. Every threat will be carried out. There are no idle threats from God. You appreciate that. There are no idle threats from God. God doesn't just run around making threats to people and crosses His fingers and, oh, well, I hope they don't test me on this one. God will take care of His threats as well as His promises. But you remember what is we read in 2 Corinthians? In fact, let's go ahead and look there. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul encouraging God's people in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. and verse 18. <coughs> And uh, yes, he says for verse 18, but as God is faithful, see, there's the starting point. God is faithful. Our word to you was not yes or no or and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of of God through us. So Paul here is stressing that the word that he was preaching to the Corinthians and what he was saying to them was, just like its author, faithful and true. And that's especially true of the promises. They are likewise faithful and to be trusted in. God has given, beloved, God has given us many, many Wonderful, exceedingly precious promises. And those promises are all yea and amen in Christ. And they will all be fulfilled and and carried out because Christ has sealed those promises with His own precious blood. And if we're in Christ, we can claim all of those promises. They are ours. And how how can we be certain God's going to fulfill all those promises? How can we be certain God's going to keep His Word in reference to those promises? Well, Paul says it's because God Himself is faithful. He's faithful. He's the promise keeping God. And all of the promises of God, all of His covenant promises, He's going to fulfill them in us and for us because Christ, our surety, is the mediator of this covenant in which all of the promises flow forth to us. And um, this afternoon when we take the Lord's table, one of the points of the, of the Lord's table is that 
That's the blood of the new covenant that's sealed in the blood of Jesus. And all of those benefits that He has secured for us, they're going to come to us. And not because we're nice people, not because we're good people. No, no, in fact we're not. But it's because Jesus has shed His blood in order to purchase those benefits for us. So the covenant is sure and steadfast because of what Jesus has done in our behalf. And so, brethren, as a believer and as a child of God, I can cling to God's promises. I can be certain. I can be certain of the promises of God. I can be certain that my sins are forgiven. One of the great promises of the covenant, God says, I will remember the sins and iniquities no more. Or if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 I can be certain that God is working all things together for my ultimate good if I do indeed love Him, if I've been called by Him. That's His promise to me. And I can be certain that I'm going to be preserved for His heavenly kingdom because God has pledged that He will not turn away from us to do us good, that He will put His fear within our hearts and He will not turn away from us and He won't allow us to turn away from Him. It's a covenant promise. I can be certain that if I pray and ask for anything that's according to His will, that He's going to hear it. He's going to grant my petition because He's promised to do so. I can be certain that I'm going to grow in grace and be sanctified. I'm going to be ultimately perfected and glorified because God has promised to do so, to sanctify us completely, that He would preserve us blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, and He who, is, who has promised is faithful why is it you're going to get to heaven oh it's because I'm such a good person and I come to church and I do everything just right forget about it if you get there at all it will be by the grace of God it will be by God's preserving grace he who calls you is faithful he will do it so, but you see the idea here. Brethren, we can depend upon the Lord. He is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. A God of truth. Let me put it like this. For Him to break His word or His promise, He would have to deny Himself. His character would have to alter. If He were to break His word, if He were to go back on His promises... God would have to change who He is. And I can guarantee you one thing. He's the Lord. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He does not change. He's faithful then. He'll be faithful now. He's faithful forever. He's never made a promise that He won't keep. He's never uttered a word that's not absolutely true. He's never made a commitment that he doesn't intend to live up to. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful in his person, in his being, in his word, his promises, his purposes, his judgments are all true and righteous and faithful. He is eternally faithful and trustworthy. God has never, ever broken his word or disappointed anyone who has trusted in him. Now this morning by way of application, just let me mention two things. And again, we're going to talk about our faithfulness later. But for now, this morning, there are two things I'd like to press upon us. Number one is consolation. Brothers and sisters, those of you that are in Christ here this morning, we can safely, safely, commit our souls and our lives to this God and His Word, His promises, because He is faithful and true. As Paul could say about his own experience, Paul said this, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day. Paul committed his very soul to a faithful Savior being persuaded 
of his ability to save, as well as his faithfulness to keep his word to him. Well, 1 Peter 4.19, Peter's counsel to suffering believers. Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What am I supposed to do in the midst of suffering? How am I to respond to opposition and persecution or even sorrow? Well, not with anxiety, not with panic, not by yielding to the pressure and giving in to sin or the pressure of the world. No, I'm to be committing my soul to God and continuing to do what is right to a faithful Creator. I can cast my care upon the great and faithful God of heaven and earth, knowing He will not forsake me. And there's a sense in which the faithfulness of God, you see, is our mainstay. It undergirds our whole life. It's the basis of our faith and our confidence in God, beloved. Because if He were not faithful, if He could not be trusted, then we couldn't have faith in Him. We could not have confidence in anything that He says, anything that He promised. But brothers and sisters, my Bible says and my own conscience bears testimony, God is faithful. And therefore we can safely put our souls and our destiny and our lives into His hands. We can stake our lives and our eternal souls on the God of the Bible. And I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. Amen. May God forgive us for our doubting of Him. But then we're called to imitate Him. We're called to be like Him. Now when I say that, you understand I'm not saying we're going to be like God in an ultimate sense. I don't mean that at all. But we are called to be faithful as believers. That is the fruit of the Spirit that we hope to open up on another time. But as our God is a faithful God, we too are to be faithful believers. He's faithful to us. We're to be faithful to Him. As He is faithful to His Word and His promises, we are likewise to be faithful to our Word and our promises. May God make us faithful unto death, beloved. You know, we live in an age where most people are unfaithful. We do. We live in an age where people lie at the drop of a hat. It's harder and harder to trust anybody I mean, there's some people that if they're moving their lips, they are lying. It's just that simple. It's hard to trust people at work. It's hard to trust people, some of our, our distant relatives. It's hard to trust people who write things in the newspaper or on the internet. It's just getting to the point where you don't even know who to believe anymore. As far as keeping their word, or keeping their commitments. They make a commitment to this and ten minutes later they break their commitment. They make a promise to do this and ten minutes later they break their promise to do what they said they would do. That's just epidemic in our day. It ought not to be so among the people of God. True. We serve a faithful God. And you and I are to be faithful as well. Amen. And people should be able to carry our word to the bank both literally and figuratively. We should strive to be as faithful to our commitments and faithful to our word as God is to His. We've got to be radically different. Just because everybody around us fudges the truth, everybody else cheats on their income tax, everybody else does this, everybody else does that, it just don't matter what everybody else does. They'll be judged for themselves, guess what? You'll be judged for yourself, not for them. And now if you're here this if you're here this morning and you're lost and you've never come to put all of your trust and all of your hope in God's only begotten Son to save you from your sins. This truth of God's faithfulness cuts two ways this morning. First of all, God calls you. He calls all sinners. But he calls, calls you to look to His Son in faith and in repentance, promising if, the, if you will do that, He will save you. 
He will forgive all of your sins. You say, yeah, well, I've got lots of sins. That's okay. Not, it's not okay that you have lots of sins, but it is in, in terms of His forgiveness. He can forgive all kinds of sin. And some of us know that to be true personally. And He will forgive all of them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God will keep His work. He cannot and will not lie. He will not deceive you. If He says He will receive you and forgive you, He means it. He will do it. But secondly, if you go on, you walk out the door, you throw this off, you refuse to believe in the gospel, reject God's offer of salvation in Christ, you'll still be faithful. You'll be faithful ultimately if you remain in that condition to condemn you to hell. Jesus, the Word of God tells us, He that believes not shall be condemned. I didn't say it. That's what God says. He that believes not, he shall be condemned. And both of these promises, the promise to save all who come to Him in faith, and the promise to damn those who will not, those promises, the faithful God, I guarantee you, He will keep them both. Yes, sir. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are that we have a faithful, covenant-keeping God that cannot lie, that does not deceive, that keeps His Word absolutely, keeps His commitments, keeps His covenant with His people. Lord, how, how glorious in faithfulness You are. Now help us, O oh God. Help those who are in here today that are outside of Christ, that it, this might be the day, that the, the day they come to understand that they are a sinner. And Lord, we're all sinners. But Lord, there has to be a time in our lives where we come to grips with that. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God would bring deep conviction to those who are in our presence that are outside of Christ. Give them hope in Christ. Give them faith in Christ. May they, in that one sense, passive sense, lay down their lives for Jesus. They would be eager to know Him and trust Him completely. Save them, Lord. And help us, O oh God, Your people, to be faithful, to be more faithful to repent of our unfaithfulness. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. benediction upon us, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.